Honourable Bob Carr is an industry professor at the University of Technology, Sydney and works with the Institute for Sustainable Futures and the UTS School of Business, bringing his unique skills and experience to diverse portfolios including business and industry, international relations and climate change research and policy. Professor Carr is also a former Foreign Minister of Australia and the longest continuously serving Premier in New South Wales history. Ed Blakely is a former Washington insider, an internationally recognised leader in urban development and planning, advisor and author. Tina Quinn is a public and social affairs journalist, born and raised in Australia, with a particular interest in the US-Australia alliance. Professor Carr, welcome to Cross Pacific Conversations. Pleasure to be with you. Great to have you, Bob. We go back a long way. I know. You made my first appointment here in about 2004. Six or so? No, it was earlier than that. Earlier than that, definitely earlier, earlier than, than that, that, on the recommendation of my planning minister, Craig Knowles. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that plan we made is still in force. Yeah. They've changed the colors on the map, but nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you've been planning a lot. You're foreign minister and premier and a lot of leadership roles. Uh, I want to go a little bit st- uh, backward a little bit uh, by saying, what are you doing now, uh, and how does it touch international affairs and the United States? Well, I, I'm proud to say I'm based at uh, the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, where I'm professor of business and climate, and I think it couldn't be more timely. The 2020s is seeing the challenge of global warming accelerate with a disturbing number of people saying um, we're running out of time, we've got to halve emissions by 2030. But also some splendid opportunities, the performance of the new president in Washington, um, China making what I think will be a titanic contribution to restructuring their economy to take account of the urgency of uh, this this existential environmental challenge. And the Europeans, just to give a, a measure of how fast things have moved, the Europeans astonish me by taking out of their bottom drawer and introducing into the European Parliament legislation that, that commits them to carbon tariffs. And uh, we tried that. Hmm? We tried that here in Australia yeah. back in your day. An emissions trade, put, yeah, putting a domestic price on carbon. Just just bear this in mind. If that had succeeded in the Senate, we did the New South Wales. Yes. The, the New mm-hmm. South Wales G-Gas mm-hmm. scheme. I'm, I'm very proud of that. But if we'd done it in the Senate and it just missed out on getting through the Senate, the coalition changed its leadership and flipped on climate. Just imagine this we would have been steadily pricing carbon Mm. since 2009. That would have gradually influenced business decision-making, the investment decisions that boardrooms commit themselves Mm. to, and sending a message that renewables were the future. And we we wouldn't suffer these jolts to the system. We suffer now with the expedited closing of coal-fired power. That's right. It would have been the more sta- gradual. Yeah, the steady, the incremental effect of a pricing of carbon. 
But we've sort of locked ourselves into the, the situation that we're in at the moment. We sort of doubled down and now the road ahead looks kind of rocky to get out of it, doesn't it? And the world has moved beyond Australia mm. with dramatic, dramatic pacing. Uh, so at the present time, as a John Kerry, Biden's climate envoy, might view Australia, uh, we're really there in a category with Saudi Arabia and Brazil. We're not there with the Europeans, with the Canadians, with Japan, with China, saying firmly net zero emissions by mm. 2050. So diplomatically, we're isolated and the Prime Minister feels under pressure um, as a, a person without a strong view one way or the other mm -hmm. on climate to keep accommodating the Conservatives who actually talk the insanity of another coal-fired power station. Ridiculous. Uh, now, not, oh, sorry, just to ask, are these not going to be stranded assets, though, within a number of years? Can you can you talk to us a little bit about what's going to happen from an export um, side, of, the export side of things? Um, what's going to happen with our big exporters who we export coal and, and gas to? Well, there's got to be a reason that BHP closed its Mount Arthur mine. Mm -hmm. And it's doing so looking at the way the world demand for thermal coal is moving. And Japan is saying, we're setting ourselves a tough target here. Um, they'll be buying less coal. Uh, China will buy virtually none. India's made a massive commitment to renewables. And India's a country where Adani has got altogether a different image from the one it has in Australia. It's, the, it's pursuing renewables. And Modi, very close to Adani, has said this is how the Indians get their energy security. Um, the ultimate security is is energy from wind and from solar. And they have deserts too. Yeah. So there, I mean, this is the way the world is moving. Australia is stranded diplomatically and the rush to get out of coal is real. And it's not the orderly transition we would have given ourselves if we'd been pricing carbon incrementally from 2009. So let's stay on this. Uh, we are a small country, the current prime minister says, and what we do have, has little impact on the world and maybe little impact on Australia. How would you respond to that? Well, we can't extricate ourselves from a global movement that takes account of a body of scientific work about the human impact on the planetary environment. We can't say, well, that's a concern for others, but Australia is suddenly changing character. We're going to become an international outlier instead of being a, a paid-up member of the world community, which is the way the international character, we've assumed a responsible player, a creative, from time to time, a creative middle power. Um, the other argument is that we are exporting carbon. We are exporting carbon to the rest mm. of the world. And therefore, we are part of this whole engine that has altered the planetary environment. Yes. So I want to move this curve across the Pacific. Now, here's an opportunity with Biden, with leadership here. The, we're the two principal powers on the Pacific. China... I, understand they are a, a huge player. But in the kind of free world 
We are the players. How do we do things collectively with the United States? You were foreign minister. Uh, we've talked to Kim Beasley. How would you put our role going forward to meet this important challenge? Because what Australia does and the United States, uh, using the old football analogy, the first base teams set the tone for all the others. Well, I'm, I'm in a minority of opinion in Australia that says we ought to have among our diplomatic armory a creative bilateral relationship, mm. a pragmatic bilateral relationship with China. So as I would see it, Australia's role ought to be to use our partnership with China in diplomatic parlance that the Chinese especially like. We call it a st comprehensive strategic partnership. Um, and our alliance relationship with the United States to narrow gaps. For example, mm -hmm. to encourage both sides to start talking about off-ramps over Taiwan. This is the biggest threat to mm -hmm. peace and security probably on the planet, certainly in our region. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't there be a role for an Australia that sees itself as a creative middle power in listing for discussion between us and the Americans and us and the Chinese the most creative ways of avoiding a showdown over Taiwan and for associating ourselves with these, the effort to build off-ramps. But the other, the other great... Um, the off-ramps means ability to, or say it, uh, miss the target. To, exactly, exactly. To, uh, we're not going to get our arguments about Taiwan being part of China. But there are ways in which Taiwan, China, United States, and Australia can work together. Yeah. So this is, this is an area where the kind a managed, of a, a managed sort of strategic competition. Yes, that's like. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And there's an instinct in the Biden administration um, for building areas of collaboration with China while still accepting that, unlike the vision of the Obama administration under Biden there'll be explicit competition with China, for example, on tech mm -hmm. and more strategic pushback, more explicit pushback, for example, in the South China Sea, although it's not clear what, what they can, what, what America can do beyond, beyond continuing to mm -hmm. run uh, so-called freedom of navigation patrols. But um, this is an environment in which Australia could assert for itself if we had more confidence, a serious diplomatic role. And it's not one that, that any of the 10 nations in ASIO, I think, could embrace. But we, trusted by China as a serious diplomatic player, which we could be, um, and trusted by the United States as a proven ally, um, we could say, well, to both of them, well, here's an agenda. Let's agree that the big goal is to avoid a showdown over Taiwan. Um, let's accept there's going to be more strategic competition here. Australia's uh, believes in realpolitik. We're, mm -hmm. we're not going to contest that. It's a fact of life. Um, the prevailing power, the U.S., challenged by the rising power, China. But um, can we work at limit, limiting those areas where the competition or the rivalry threatens peace and security. Now, you haven't mentioned Hong Kong. 
Well, I think... Is the game over? There I've got no conflict with what Biden and his people have been saying. Australia's got no alternative but to say to the Chinese, Mm. um, we, we were a great believer in one country, two systems. We thought that the the system that Hong Kong was enjoying, rule of law, an independent judicial system, um, and elected people making decisions, no, no forcing of Beijing legislation on national security, we thought that was working well, not least for China. Um, and we've got, to, we've got to continue to maintain our principled position on that without deluding ourselves that uh, China is capable under the current government um, with, the, with all the, the nationalist instincts that are to the fore in Beijing of, of reconsidering that decision and reinstating the legal and administrative autonomy that Hong is, Kong, I think, to the benefit of China, used to enjoy. Is there a role, mm-hmm. again, for the United States and Australia to come together? Two are tougher than one. Um I think we'd coordinate our statements okay. with the U.S., right. but I think it's very important for our credibility that we look like laying down what is a principled Australian position, namely support for liberties, uh, for human rights in Hong Kong, despite the abrupt assertion of what was always the underlying legal position, namely Chinese sovereignty. So let's uh, move around the Pacific a little bit, Miramar. Hmm. Uh, here we have a situation that is close to out of hand. Mm. Uh, the, the government, I'll call them the government, they have been ousted by the military. The military uh, is certainly not able to see how much they're isolating themselves, particularly if Australia just this week dropped its relationships on the military mm. side. How can we forge a stronger role in that memory? Because we can do it now. Ed, the challenge we've got is that the military don't care. They don't care. They don't care about the isolation. They, they are the embodiment of ethno-nationalism. Mm. Mm-hmm. They're saying we, we contest the power of ethnic-based movements within this country. Um, We assert a kind of Burmese nationalism. And if this means isolation, we're ready to return to it. This is tragic. Uh, One one abiding memory I've got of my two visits there as foreign minister was the impact of its isolation and the poverty that went with that isolation. You saw young people who should have been fit and healthy who were clearly, from their limbs and their height, the victims of malnutrition, Mm -hmm. stunting, stunting during their childhood when there simply wasn't enough to eat. This is a tragedy because stunting dooms people in the poverty of developing countries. Their brains are stunted as well. Yeah, yeah, that's that's terrible. um, and it dooms them to shorter lifespans because of the impact on their internal organs. So the country's opened up as foreign capital has flooded in. There are plans for ports, um, support for agriculture, a host of things. And now one thing you guarantee that will accompany a military dictatorship 
is impoverishment. And we can't do anything about it? Well, no, we, we're to be, I wouldn't say this, we're a foreign minister, I'd hold, mm. hold out some hope, uh, I'll give you the diplomatic form mm. of words, but the key is that this, this military clique that's taken over doesn't care about the opinion of the world. Mm. I, you just touched on there as, you know, what you would have done as foreign minister, and I do want to touch on, on, on that, on, the, on that bilateral relationship, because your role was one that's really key to, to have to, to forging that bilateral relationship that we've often enjoyed that we've long enjoyed with the United States so you worked uh, in partner you, your Secretary of State uh, the Secretary of State sorry that you often yes. communicated with was Secretary Clinton yes uh, if uh, what sort of what do you think the start how, how, how different has the stance been? Uh, in in the decade that's followed since Secretary Clinton, now she hasn't been she she didn't leave ten years ago, but what sort of framework is is Secretary Blinken, for instance, going to be walking into, and how can we, uh, how can Peter Dutton, uh, Foreign Minister Dutton, enjoy the same sort of successful relationship that you enjoyed with Secretary Clinton? Yeah, I think. It was it was so easy uh, to be to be, to be part of a Labor government working with yeah. a, a, a liberal de- yes, Democrat exactly. administration. Yeah. Um, for Whereas example, now it's not the same. Yeah. No, no. So she was, she was, um, she would elevate the role of women and girls in developing mm-hmm. countries, mm-hmm. and that was a big part of our. Uh, that was a thematic part of our overseas development assistance program. Mm-hmm. And as someone concerned with uh, population policy, I knew that the way of curbing um, a high birth rate, an unsustainably high birth rate in the developing world, is to empower women and girls. Of course. Um, so on things like that, it was just very comfortable to work with her, even, even when there was a bit of a difference as over our, our vote uh, to elevate Palestinian status in the General Assembly, where we broke ranks. Well, that was it, one thing she was she was more on the pro-Israel side of yeah, things, wasn't yeah, she? That's yeah, that's right. But, yeah. but I think I think they were smart enough in the State Department to see that this would be a useful argument with Netanyahu. Yeah. Netanyahu mm-hmm. They could say, well, mm-hmm. they could say to Netanyahu, well, there you go, you, you keep spreading settlements and saying no to the Palestinians. You're losing a rusted-on friend like Australia because mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. what this madman Carr has done in persuading his government <laughs> to um, shift the vote. Um, so I think... Both sides will work hard where there's a, a difference of political philosophy that is between the incumbents in Canberra mm. and the incumbents in Washington um, and, and to reach across the political divide. But America will expect us, America will expect us to deliver on climate in a way that we haven't been. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've to the extent I can have any influence on it. Now that I'm out of politics, I did see that Marion Wilkinson's book, The Carbon Club, mm-hmm. was dispatched to John Kerry after he'd been appointed, after he'd been appointed uh, envoy on climate. Um, so he should be. I think it might have caught his eye. I think he might have been interested in it because there are a lot of American references to it, mm-hmm. and um, he can see where Australia stands, and at the appropriate time deliver deliver a bit of pressure. The Americans are aware that we've been a laggard on climate mm-hmm. and they'd be aware of uh, the position of someone like Dutton. Right. 
So what do you what do you see the future for that relationship being between? Oh, the Americans, given their strategic competition with China, which has become more explicit, mm-hmm. um, which which Biden will continue while at the same time working for collaboration with China on pandemic management and climate. Um, I think they, they, they continue to be deeply appreciative that Australia is such a rusted-on ally, mm-hmm. even to the point where we'll, sacrifice, we'll lose our own markets in China and watch American lobster exporters or beef and, exporters and gain wine. them and wine exporters <laughs> pick up those markets. I mean, it, I, I mean, there must be a wry smile on American faces as they contemplate markets opened up for them because of Australia's willingness to do to commit acts of self harm to impress to impress Washington. <laughs> uh, while we're talking about uh, mutual self harm, January the sixth, and you are a historian in the United States. You and I have talked about this in the old days many times. The United States is a country that was built on insurrection. We in this country, for the first time ever, are banning an organization for its uh, white supremacy views and so forth as terrorists. Uh, how do you see, A, the insurrection in Washington? Is this a blip? I didn't think that America would find the transition from um, white majority to minority majority country quite as painful i think the i thought it was going to be a very gradual affair there's some ambiguity about As martin luther king how, said the long swing of justice yeah yeah and always always about this thing going back to the 1850s the decade before the civil war mm. always about the role of the federal government in, in enforcing standards of race equality in the resisting South. Yes. So when the South says, no, 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 it's not about race, it's about states' rights, well, they were saying that in the 1850s. Mm. Sure, it's about states' rights, but it's about the right of the states, yes. the right of the states to enforce discrimination against African Americans. Yeah, it is, it is about states' rights, but finish the sentence. Yes. Finish the sentence. You know, you, 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 in the old days, you'd meet someone from the South who'd say, let me tell you, the uh, Civil War was a war between the states. It was over states' rights. It wasn't about race. Uh, after all, um, after all, uh, Grant's family, uh, Grant's wife uh, had slaves, and uh, Lincoln's wife uh, had, had uh, slave associ- had, had, had members who, who owned slaves. And uh, on the other hand, you look at Robert E. Lee. Uh, um, he he, uh, had, he embraced manumission. Um, forget it. Forget it. This was all about, yes, states' rights, but states, the right of the states in the South to enforce discrimination and, moreover, to say that any new state would be able to make a decision about whether it'd be slaveholding or non-slaveholding. That's why they're admitted in but, twos, pairs, hmm? remember? That's yeah. why they were admitted in pairs. Yeah, yeah, to, to maintain that balance. balance. But when the balance looked look like being upset by Supreme Court decisions, the Dred Scott decision, decision of 1857, the North felt America was on the point of 
reinstating slavery in northern states where it had been abolished. Mm. So it's all about all about the use of federal power on race, and it's remarkable. It, it's true Still to there. today. And and the revolt on January sixth was in, in in which there wasn't a black face was all about saying return our country, by which they meant to the erstwhile white majority. And they took particular offence, I sense, at the outcome of the Senate runoff elections in Georgia. Georgia. Well, it happened the, the, the day after, basically. It was concerned. Yeah. yeah, it was confirmed that you know two Democrats had, had, had taken the Senate majority, basically. A, a Jew and a black man. Yeah. yeah a in, Jew and a black a man. A Jew and a black exactly. man. But as a result of this remarkable organizational effort driven by Stacey Abrams, um, who... Black and a woman, which would have... (laughs) Black black and a woman and defeated in an orgy of um, voter suppression when she stood as governor in 2018. Mm. And let's get back to uh, the (laughs) I I just can't... I I, I smile every time I I hear her interviewed because of the... She's the sense of triumph she must feel, and which she's she's concealing so well. Yes, uh, getting back to what Very I raised gracious. earlier, the second point, we've got a little of that going on here. Uh, are there things, from your historic point of view, and leadership point of view, that we could do together to suppress this kind? We're becoming a minority country. Here in Australia, we have a large share, I don't know what share, not like the United States, but still, we are a multi-racial country and are doing it pretty well. I've lived in both, as you know, mm. and there are some issues that are common. And one of them, the issues that's common is this rising interest of some bicycle riders and so forth, uh, motorbike riders, to have put race first. Did they learn that from the United States or is it something in the water? I think we import, on left and right, we import American modes, Mm. American tropes into our thinking. But do you think, I mean, that was when I think we really started seeing a return and and, and real quite strong racial tensions here in in Australia. Now that was during really, that started sort of in the mid-late 90s. And race all of a sudden became a key issue for our Conservative Party, where it it hadn't previously been. We sort of, you know, we differed on other things like the economy and small government, and big government. And you look at the leadership of Mal- Malcolm Fraser and then mm. uh, John Hewson when he mm. was leading the Liberal Party. Race wasn't front and centre, uh, but... It was really John Howard and, of course, Pauline Hanson that um, really opened that discussion up about immigrants, Pauline Hanson specifically, with we're being swamped uh, by immigrants, specifically Asians. Uh, You know, the discussion about, I guess, from the Howard uh, team about um, Indigenous people and that whole, you know, Indigenous people are got more rights than the rest of us do and all that sort of rhetoric that was opened up. Over in the United States, I mean, there was a quite liberal government at that time. Uh, you know, it was it was, a Demo- it was the Democrats, it was the Clintons and, you know, and there were race riding going on over there, but it was, I felt like it became a key ballot issue here um, at a time when it, it wasn't exactly over in the United States. 
I thought the Adam Goods documentary. Yes. It's the ABC one. Mm-hmm. The Adam Goods mm-hmm. documentary. Saw that. It said a great deal. It said a great deal about the persistence of raw racism mm-hmm. in Australia. Um, that Eddie Maguire comment. This is the, this is what, 2010 or so, Eddie Maguire making that mm. King Kong comment. Now, that was pure, boof headed barroom, but altogether malign racism. And I thought for. Um, Adam Goods to participate in a documentary that would revive all that mm-hmm. showed a lot of spirit mm. on his part. Um, one, of the, one of the good things happening in Australia, just to divert a bit, is uh, the historiography, which is forcing someone who's a bit of a history buff like myself to really take notice. A couple of examples of that are... Um, uh, the first Australians on SBS, which has got serious interviews with Aboriginal historians in it, mm-hmm. and the new book uh, Uluru, mm-hmm. which I think is well worth mm-hmm. commendation and study. Um, we're in the middle of this now, mm. um, and even the movie High Ground, which has had its critics, did capture something, I think, of the frontier violence. Right. And do we... Um as you know, we used to go to the U.S. before before COVID. I took teams over to pick up on issues like this. This show is opening up the issues we just discussed with you because the next time it will be face-to-face. This show is a warm-up. Uh, and I think what you've just said is we can face race together and ethnicity together and indigenous people together. Yeah, we, there's nothing in our background that enables us to be supercilious, condescending to America. We didn't have the challenge of that uh, formal legalized slavery and of 10% of the population um, being of a different color mm-hmm. from the, the dominant majority. Um, I don't think Australia's response if we'd had that challenge would have been much different from that of the U.S. Um, but I've got to say, someone in, someone interested in U.S. history, the difficulty about this has persisted much longer than it needed to have persisted. Of course. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And we've got to get it out of the water in both places. Get That's, it out of the water in yeah, both places. That's a this good is, way of putting it, Ed. Uh, if you drink <laughs> this stuff, and you know... The big lie was drinking the bad Kool-Aid. Yeah. Hmm. People wanted to believe it. And I've talked to people here who believe it because they say, well, the same thing's happening here, you know, levels, et cetera. They cheat. Well, come on. <laughs> come on. You were you were premier during the uh, the Cronulla race riots, of course, during in, in mm. 05, I think it was. Just after my time. Oh, it was just yeah, after just your after time. Just after my Sorry. time, yeah. Right. Yeah, the, the good thing about that, this is a very positive message, mm-hmm. that while there had been challenges in the behaviour of some sections of the Lebanese community, we've 
all of a sudden we can scratch our heads and say, where did that go? Yeah. Where did that go? Mm. Yeah. It went. And I remember working on an Arabic youth partnership. We got we mobilised teams to get out there in the streets and in sensitive area areas, Bankstown Railway Station, mm -hmm. for example, or around the casino, where young men from his from uh, Lebanese backgrounds were congregating and being drawn into antisocial behaviour that could have mm -hmm. developed with a flash mm -hmm. of temper into criminal behaviour, just talking to them, getting them to cool down, take a step back. It it was a very good example of crime prevention mm. in the streets at midnight with members of the ethnic community concerned being mobilised. Things looked pretty grim for a while, and, and you would have been justified in saying on the ev evidence this is a bigger challenge for our multiculturalism than we've, we've previously seen. Mm. But the happy thing is we've got over it. When do you read about this in the press today? It's true. Mm. A, a few instances, not many, but... Uh, you know, given like, how big it was in the, the early two thousands, nineteen nineties, gang rapes, um, ugly kind of scenes stuff, yeah. in, in in courtrooms, um, and a lot of complaints about the level of antisocial activity, um, we sort of absorbed that, tried different solutions. The worst, the 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 uh, perhaps the the Cronulla riots brought it to a head. Very possibly, very possibly. But I think there's also an argument to be made for, uh, you know, the, the behaviour might have seemed quite antisocial, but I think um, I think we were quite antisocial towards them uh, upon arrival. So I, you know, I, I think that plays a lot into it as well. That seems like a good place to leave it. Uh, thank you, Bob Carr. Thank you oh, so much, great Bob pleasure. Carr. Great pleasure. And, uh, you're always a person with good knowledge, good insights and a really caring person, and that cares. We're gonna, we're Don't know about that, Ed. I'm, I'm making it up as I go along like everyone else. Well, but you're making up a good story. <laughs> okay. And that's what well, you're we doing have a good do. job of it. <laughs> and that's what we have to do, keep caring. Thank, keep thanks, Ed. Thanks, active. Tina. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks Pleasure. an awful lot. Thank you. Find previous chats in this series and subscribe so you don't miss out on anything in future wherever you find the podcast, Pacific Conversations. For weekly U.S. news and current affairs updates, check out Ed's other podcast with myself, Sean Britton, U.S. of Ed, and check out the website as well for more information on our guests and future conversations in this series, edtalks.com.au.